Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Eleanor Goldfield will return with me next week. On today's program, we focus on Russia and Ukraine. We welcome author and activist Harvey Wasserman. His recent article in the Progressive Magazine, Chernobyl 2.0, how Russia's attack on Ukraine could release nuclear fallout across the globe. We talk about not just nuclear weapons, but nuclear power plants in Ukraine and the impact that the war and invasion could have. After that, we're excited to welcome expert Cold War historian Peter Kuznick. Peter Kuznick was with us just a couple weeks ago to talk about Russia and Ukraine. I recently sat down with Peter Kuznick to talk about this Russian invasion. These conversations were held February 24th and 25th. Stay tuned for the Project Censored Show. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, in this segment, we are going to talk about Chernobyl 2.0, how Russia's attack on Ukraine could release nuclear fallout across the globe. This is the title of a very recent article by Harvey Wasserman. He's written and researched atomic energy since 1973 and co-authored Killing Our Own, The Disaster of America's Experience with Atomic Energy. Harvey Wasserman has also done work around election integrity, among a number of other issues, and of course has a history going back with Project Censored some ways. Harvey Wasserman, it's a delight to have you on the Project Censored show today. Well, it's great to be with you, and I'm saying basically because Ukraine has 15, count them, 15 atomic reactors. This is the most dangerous moment in human history since the Cuban Missile Crisis. We could have a globe carpeted in radiation without a nuclear war. You got these 15 reactors there. We already had one blow at Chernobyl in 1986. It sent radiation all over the world, killed a million people. And who knows what Putin's thinking? That's what the situation is right now. Well, the situation is pretty dire, and I want to make sure that because this is an ongoing and fast-developing story between Russia, Ukraine, the U.S., NATO, I want to make sure that folks know that I'm speaking to you on February 24th because this show will air across the country next week, and we certainly hope that some of the things that you're going to be talking about today don't happen and won't happen. You know, I had Peter Kuznick, the historian on the show not long ago talking about the history and the context here on these matters. And of course, Peter Kuznick is also done a lot of work with Dan Ellsberg. And for years, they've been constantly worrying and reminding people that there are nuclear crises right around the corner. In fact, right now, the nuclear clock is, or the atomic clock is, is about 100 or nine, close to 90 seconds or whatever it is to midnight, past the two minutes to midnight spot. And this is, as you described, possibly one of the most dangerous periods we're facing regarding not just nuclear weaponry and nuclear attacks, but actually, as you're saying here, and as you say in your article now in The Progressive at Progressive.org, Chernobyl 2.0, we're dealing with the prospects of there being, you said there's 15 nuclear reactors in Ukraine. So tell us, Harvey Wasserman, tell us about what we're looking at here. What really are some serious challenges and serious risks and threats afoot? We've had some major nuclear accidents here in the United States. There was one in Santa Susana, uh, north of Los Angeles, in 59, and it, it spread a whole lot of radiation uh, just north of L.A. Of course, we had Three Mile Island in 78, 79 rather, and that killed a lot of people. I went there as a journalist, interviewed people, saw some of the studies 
that were done in the nuclear industry, like to say nobody died there. It's a complete lie. A lot of people were killed at Three Mile Island. And then the next big one was Chernobyl in 1986. It exploded. Until that time, the nuclear industry was saying that a commercial reactor can never explode. This one definitely exploded. And if anybody wants to get a real comprehensive view of what happened at Chernobyl, this is the roughest thing I've ever watched on television. But it was actually very excellent. It was a dramatization, but very, very accurate. Uh, It was a five-part series about Chernobyl, HBO or ABC. My suggestion, if you're interested, the way to do it is you start around 11 in the morning you, and you watch all five of them in a row. And you will be deeply depressed, but you will be well informed. So Chernobyl now has been taken over by the Russians. I don't know why in God's name Putin wanted to take over Chernobyl. It's like attacking a city and taking over the dump. But this is the most radioactive place on Earth. And he has an agenda there. And the Chernobyl Unit 4, which blew up, is still radioactive to the extent that they spent $2 billion on a sarcophagus, a roof, to cover it, to prevent more radiation from coming out, which is completely ineffectual, but it's now being controlled by Putin. The real danger is there are 15 reactors in Ukraine, which are licensed to operate. 12 of them were built by the Soviet Union. All 12 of them are 30 years old, as are, by the way, there are 93 reactors in the United States that are licensed to operate, and all of them are 30 years old, except for one, and that was actually began construction more than 30 years ago. So these reactors, including the two here in California at Diablo Canyon, are incredibly dangerous. They are embrittled, they are pipes cracked, poor maintenance, massive accumulations of radioactive waste and uh, there are 400 worldwide. The 15 in Ukraine are incredibly vulnerable. If Putin wanted to completely destroy Ukraine, all he'd have to do is blow up one of those reactors. When Chernobyl blew up, it carpeted Ukraine and Belarus and much of Europe with radiation. That radiation came to America. It was detected in milk in New England. It was actually connected very clearly to a massive die-off of birds at the Point Reyes Bird Sanctuary north of San Francisco. So it was a global event when Chernobyl blew up. There was a study released in 2007 that showed very clearly that it was 60% of the birds died at the Point Reyes Bird Station in the spring of 86 when there was a rainstorm that brought down the radiation from Chernobyl. So we have proof, unfortunately, that radiation from a Ukrainian nuclear plant can go all over the world. Well, we know that from Fukushima as well. And, you know, Arnie and Maggie Gunderson have been on the show and we've talked about those issues a lot. And I grew up, Harvey, outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I was about eight, nine years old in 1979. And I remember Three Mile Island pretty well, although not understanding maybe the existential nature of it at the time. But I knew it was a really, really big deal and a problem. My father worked at a power plant, and so he was actually attuned to the significance of the problem it was. But it did get some short shrift. And as you mentioned, the studies 
downplay the consequences, the death. The same thing with Chernobyl in 86. Various studies of that where scientists and others tried to downplay the significance of this. And you mentioned this study, and I want to make sure folks know this. Your article is at theprogressive.org, Chernobyl 2.0. They can reference it there. And you write that according to Chernobyl, consequences of the catastrophe for people and the environment, that's a 2007 study, you talk about there uh, being you know, more than a million people impacted and killed worldwide, which is a very, very, very different figure than the official ones given that, say, a handful of people were affected by this. You also mentioned the sarcophagus that allegedly contains the radiation. That was allegedly going to last for 100 years. It's already in rapid decay. So it's already on target to be a bigger problem without Putin, without any of this potential military targeting or accidents, quote unquote, taking place. I'm terrified. First of all, I can't figure out why Putin took it over. I'm sure there'll be a clear explanation, but you got to remember he's crazy. This is a madman. There's no reason whatsoever in a sane person's world to deploy military troops to take over a radioactive wasteland. Why would you do it? There's a city there, Pripyat, that used to have 50,000 people in it that's been abandoned since the late 80s. And the area has been designated a dead zone. They don't let people live there, but he sent his troops in there. I don't know what the guy's thinking, but meanwhile, more dangerously, you have this site, Zaporizhzhia. There are six reactors there. It's the biggest nuclear site in the world. And it's right where Putin has gone. And the point is, you don't even have to do a military action against a nuclear plant to cause it to blow up. There are cooling issues. You could cyber attack the control room. There are cooling systems. There are cracked pipes. I mean, you could probably go in to one of those 30-year-old reactors and, and take an axe and crack a pipe and bring the, bring the thing down. They're that shaky of which we have 93 in the United States. Although these are a cut below, I mean, they were built by the Soviets. So any one of these reactors could accidentally go off. You've destabilized the region. What if the guys working in the control rooms say, oh my God, here come the Russians, I'm getting out of here. They could just leave the place, for God's sakes. It's totally conceivable. It's pretty remarkable. I'm also hearing from social media, some folks that follow Reddit and Twitter, claiming that some soldiers are on Reddit and Twitter, and they're claiming that Russia might attempt to detonate one of these things. Again, I don't have the veracity or accuracy to, to corroborate that, but that's basically what you're saying here. That could be a plan. That's how vulnerable these plants are. And meanwhile, Ukraine is dependent on them for half their electricity. 20% of the country's electricity come from this, this one nuclear site, Zaborze. So, you know, uh, um, this is playing with the ultimate fire here. This is why we don't build nuclear plants. If, if Europe had gone to wind and solar instead of going to nuclear, none of this would be happening. You know, they're all afraid to go after Putin because he's got their gas supply. And he's got these pipelines going in and, and the, the big ones into France and Germany. And they're all terrified that he's going to cut off their gas. And he can do it in a heartbeat, just like he can blow up one of these nuclear plants. We don't know what this guy is thinking. You know, he was born in Kiev, by the way. And, you know, people think, well, he wants to retake his hometown. You know, I was born in Boston. I'm not going to attack Boston. But, you, you know, what can I tell you? Um, uh, we don't understand this guy. 
And furthermore, they're talking about sanctions on him, uh, but he, he can do business with China. He doesn't have to do business with the West. But meanwhile, he's got control of these nuclear reactors. And by the way, the Russians have been partially contracted all these years to help run these reactors. They've been fueling these reactors and they've been partially maintaining them. Ukraine was in the process or is in the process of trying to turn over operations to Westinghouse. But here you have a country that's attacking another country and they're also running their nuclear plants and fueling them. How wacky is that? This is the ultimate payback for the peaceful atom. This, this is what we got from going nuclear. And, and like I say, if Europe had gone to wind and solar 30 years ago, none of this would be happening. Yeah, so this is, a, a, again, your article really goes into this. And what you're suggesting here goes beyond foreign policy and really looks at global energy policy. You mentioned Westinghouse. General Electric, of course, also in there is one of the big companies with serious problems with their, their nuclear technologies. We saw it in Japan. We've seen it elsewhere. I just wanted to take this opportunity to remind our listeners that you are tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're talking to Harvey Wasserman about an article he's got in the progressive magazine, Chernobyl 2.0, How Russia's Attack on Ukraine Could Release Nuclear Fallout Across the Globe. We'll continue our conversation with Harvey Wasserman after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we're talking about Chernobyl 2.0, how Russia's attack on Ukraine could release nuclear fallout across the globe. We are speaking now with Harvey Wasserman. He's written Research Atomic Energy since 1973 and co-authored Killing Our Own, The Disaster of America's Experience with Atomic Energy. Harvey Wasserman, we're talking to you today about the Russia and Ukraine issue and Putin moving troops into the Ukraine. I want to remind our listeners that you and I are talking on Thursday, February 24th. This is a pre-recorded program. So we hope that our listeners understand that you don't have a crystal ball. Uh, you don't know exactly what's going to happen over the next several days when this show airs. But you certainly have a crystal ball enough, if past his prologue, to be able to warn about the many significant dangers that we face because of this reliance on nuclear energy, these nuclear reactors. So Harvey Wasserman, let's bring in the other nuclear bogeyman here, if we will. We're dealing with a nuclear power here. We're dealing with Russia. We're dealing with a country that has armed nuclear warheads aimed at all parts of the world in the United States. So there's another nuclear component to this. And I was wondering if you could talk about how that also factors in here. Putin has nuclear weapons. France has nuclear weapons. Or the United States, China, uh, they're all over the place. And, you know, it's my contention that nuclear power plants are more dangerous in many ways. But Putin seems to be the kind of guy who can lose his temper and just say, oh, the hell with it and start shooting off missiles. You know, Barack Obama, when he took office and got the Nobel Prize, God knows what for, said he wanted to abolish nuclear weapons. And they turned around and did a trillion dollar program to enhance our arsenal. And so there they are. 
There are a few less than there used to be, but doesn't matter. And who knows? Nuclear weapons give any mad person the ability to blow up the world. And as I say, he doesn't need them. He doesn't need nuclear weapons. All he's got to do is attack the nuclear power plants. Not only just in Ukraine, but in the United States where they're 93. You can't protect a nuclear power plant. It takes so little to set one off. You got to put things in perspective. I marched against the Fukushima reactors in Japan in the 1970s. And we said, we had signs, the ones that I could read that were in English, saying, do not build nuclear plants in an earthquake zone surrounded by tsunami possibilities. And of course, they said, no, 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 no problem. And then the four reactors exploded. And the reactors at Fukushima have released more than 100 times more cesium than was released at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So these reactors have proven in killing power, they can far exceed nuclear weapons. And that's where we're at. Well, in many cases, you're suggesting here that these nuclear reactors are tentative weapons. They just need to be weaponized, detonated. California certainly where I'm living. California didn't pay any heed to your protest necessarily. We've got our own couple of nuclear plants that are big problems right here in earthquake zones. Don't seem to get a lot of attention, though, Harvey. doesn't seem to be in the news very much. There is a deliberate ignorance of the nuclear power issue. I've loved being in the anti-nuclear movement for the last four decades, but I made one great sacrifice. It was during the NBA playoffs and the Warriors were playing the Cavs and I hated to miss it, but I went because I had heard that this movie, San Andreas, with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, was about the San Andreas fault going off, but it did not mention Diablo Canyon. I couldn't believe it. And I wanted to write about it, but I felt obliged to see the movie. They did an entire film, an entire feature movie. They showed the San Andreas Fault, this big crack going through the middle of California. They showed L.A. being destroyed. They showed San Francisco underwater. And from start to finish, this entire major feature film about a disaster of the San Andreas Fault going off never once mentioned nuclear power, did not say a word about Diablo Canyon. I mean, astounding. So here, except for the fact that he took over Chernobyl, God knows why, I watched the major media for hours today. I saw not a single mention of the 15 reactors in Ukraine, six of which I believe he he has taken over. So it's selective amnesia here, and it's insane and extremely dangerous. He doesn't have to shoot off his nuclear weapons. There's no need for nuclear weapons. If one of the reactors goes off, God forbid, in Ukraine, it'll do more damage than a nuclear weapon. So there you go. That's a recipe for disaster, but it's also where we've clearly been heading because when the Cold War allegedly ended 30-odd years back, there was some jubilation and so forth. But then what's your read on the NATO element or angle here. I'm not looking to justify anything that's happening with Putin, Russia, etc. What I am looking to do, however, is look at what's another element that might be triggering tensions in the region, and one can't help but look at what NATO is doing. And what can you tell us about the role that NATO's played in its own expansion and how that plays out with the tensions in the region and potentially exacerbates the situation with the nuclear power? You have a very long history of Western European powers invading Russia. World War I, World War II, 
And Stalin had this vision, and Putin's a lot like Stalin. Stalin was allegedly a communist, but if the Soviet Union under Stalin was communism, it's like calling America a democratic socialist state. You have to think Stalin when you look at Putin. The Russians have always wanted sort of a moat between them and Western Europe. And a lot of what touched us off clearly is the idea that Ukraine will become a NATO power. I'm not an expert on this part, but I would guess that NATO will draw the line militarily at Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, Finland. In Putin's eyes, it's an encroachment, and he was sensitive about NATO getting into Ukraine. I will throw in one other thing that you have not heard anywhere which is that the president of Ukraine is Jewish. And let's just say that there has been a strain of anti-Semitism throughout Russian history. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But the idea of a larger war in Europe, I have my doubts. I don't know that Putin would cross the line with NATO, but there's no doubt he wanted to keep NATO out of Ukraine. And meanwhile, I'm going to re repeat this again. If Europe, you know, I've been a green, I've been an activist, uh, for renewable energy since the 1970s. And a lot of nuclear plants and a lot of coal and gas have been mined and milled and burned since the 1970s. We argued very clearly in the 1970s that the whole world should go to renewables. And if it had, this would not be happening. You would not have, obviously, 15 nuclear plants. The Germans aren't scheduled to shut down the last three in that country by the end of this year. But, you know, they're going to cut off their gas. Uh, let's see what, if they backtrack. I don't know. This is an energy war. This is about the pipelines. This is about the coal and, again, the nuclear plants. And as I say, in 1952, the U.S. government did a report saying that the U.S. could go solar, have 15 million solar heated homes by 75. That didn't happen. The first photovoltaic cells were developed in 54 at the Bell Labs. We could have had every rooftop in America covered with solar panels as well as in Europe. And Russia has more wind than you could ever believe. Every electron of electricity in Russia could be supplied by wind power with no problem whatsoever. And by the way, I just came across a quote. I'm in researching my history book, The People's Spiral of U.S. History. I came across a quote, you know which American president first predicted wind power in the United States? It was Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln, by the way, was a techno-freak. Lincoln had a patent. He established the National Academy of Sciences. That's one of the reasons the North won the Civil War. But the fact is that Lincoln understood that if we harnessed wind power, we could power the country. That was in 1862. So if we had gone the way we wanted to, and not built these nuclear plants and built wind across the Great Plains of Russia and solar throughout Europe, this wouldn't be happening. None of this would be going on. Now there's complete idiots talking about building new nuclear plants. If this doesn't end that, I, I don't know what will. Harvey Wasserman, I'm glad you went there. We have a couple minutes left. And what I was going to ask you, let's hope that this passes there will not be a detonation. There will not be a deliberate attack. Again, we're talking on February 24th. We certainly hope nothing catastrophic of that degree happens, let alone any kind of nuclear weaponry. These reactors are weapons themselves when detonated. But look at Chernobyl. I mean, this is just sitting here. This is like borrowed time. Explain to our listeners how hard is it to decommission this? How hard is it to get rid of this kind of a threat? 
There's one word that describes decommissioning, and that's impossible. Look at Fukushima. They've got thousands of gallons of water sitting in tanks that they can't deal with, and they want to dump it into the Pacific Ocean. For God's sakes. And Chernobyl, as since 86, that's 35 years, is also sitting there and had to be covered with an awning, basically, a $2 billion awning that they put over the, the place. And you've got reactors all across the United States. We got San Onofre uh, between LA and San Diego. Can't deal with it. They don't know how to deal with this radioactive waste. And decommissioning is a joke. Decommissioning the plants will cost more than it costs to build the plants in the first place. And it still won't be complete. You can never restore those sites what they were before they went radioactive. You can't take the, the waste anywhere. It's something that the human race should never have done and that it will be paying for for thousands. Harvey Wasserman, we're going to have to leave it there on a bleak note, but nevertheless an accurate and truthful note. One that people really need to be thinking about. I know there's a lot going on with Russia, Ukraine, U.S., NATO, and there's a lot of other things that people are thinking about, whether it's corporate greed being called inflation or ongoing issues with the COVID pandemic. And here we are again with what's seemingly potentially an even more existential threat that you call out in your article at the Progressive Magazine, progressive.org, Chernobyl 2.0, how Russia's attack on Ukraine could release nuclear fallout across the globe. I've been speaking with Harvey Wasserman. Thank you so much, Harvey, for spending some time with us on the Project Censored show today. Well, thank you and no nukes. And I will give you the good news. We do have the capability of going 100% renewable. So if this doesn't get us to do it, I don't know what will. Thanks so much, Harvey. That was my conversation with author and activist Harvey Wasserman. His article in the Progressive Magazine, Chernobyl 2.0, How Russia's Attack on Ukraine Could Release Nuclear Fallout Across the Globe. Up next on the Project Censored show, I speak with American University historian Peter Kuznick. He's co-author with Oliver Stone of The Untold History of the United States. He was just on the program a couple weeks ago. But because of the developments in Russia, Ukraine, I sat down to speak with him again on February 25th. Up next, that conversation. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We are welcoming back to the program Peter Kuznick, professor of history and director of the award-winning Nuclear Studies Institute at American University. He is also the co-author with Oliver Stone of The Untold History of the United States. No stranger to the Project Censored audience, Peter Kuznick took time out of his very busy schedule a couple of weeks ago. He and I talked for an hour about U.S., NATO, Russia, Ukraine tensions that have now exploded. And Peter Kuznick has agreed to take 30 minutes out of his now even busier schedule to talk with us about what's happening now 
with Russia and Ukraine, U.S.-NATO responses, and the fact that Russia is invading. They're launching attacks in Ukraine. Earlier, we had a conversation with Harvey Wasserman about the nuclear tensions that are also involved and also nuclear power plants, not just weapons, and Chernobyl, a whole series of potential catastrophes not to mention humanitarian crises and disasters that are unfolding there. Peter Kuznick, welcome back to the program. It's good to be back with you. I'm not happy about what's going on in the world at the moment. I'm with you 100%, Peter Kuznick. And so could you please kick off the conversation for us about the direction things have taken? I feel a little bit like many people did in 1913 and 1914, saying that civilization had advanced too far Humanity had been elevated to too high a level to ever revert to warfare. And people were stunned that the world in 1914 would unravel the way it did with a series of entangling alliances that soon brought much of the world into World War I. And I think in 2022, we also feel civilization has gone beyond the point where there can be a major war of this sort. I know that's an ahistorical view in many respects. And even just to listen to the way this is being framed, turn on any major US television network. And what do they say? They say, this is the biggest war in Europe in 80 years. That's really, really revealing the way they frame it, because it's certainly not the biggest war in 80 years. What that does is it frames in terms of Europe, which means they don't have to talk about the U.S. invasion of Vietnam. They don't have to talk about the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, even what's going on with Saudi Arabia and Yemen. I mean, there's there's a lot of other things that could be talked about which doesn't in any way minimize the horror of what's going on in Ukraine or the crime of what Putin is committing right now against the people of Ukraine. But the way we frame it is very important for our own understanding, because this is not the end. In many ways, this is the beginning of a new security architecture and new global relations. And it's the failures to listen, the failures to take seriously these national security concerns of our adversaries that has put us in this terrible position that we're in. So now Zelensky appeals to Putin to meet, to negotiate, and he says that he's even willing to discuss neutralizing Ukraine. I've been calling for this for months. You know, why did Zelensky refuse to say that beforehand? I could understand why Zelensky didn't want to say that. I can understand why NATO wanted to insist on its open door. I also can understand why Putin was so angry and felt threatened in terms of Russian security. I I mean, everybody's got a point. Everybody's got a valid point here. But the problem is, because we're so stuck on these points, and sometimes on statements of abstract principle, that we weren't willing to compromise to see the world through the eyes of our adversaries, 
that now we're in a much more horrific situation. I think back to the great Japanese nuclear war film, Black Rain from 1991. There were two great nuclear war films in 1991 produced by Japan. One is Black Rain. The other was the Kurosawa film, Rhapsody in August, about Nagasaki. But Black Rain was about Hiroshima. A lot of flashback scenes to the bombing in 1945, but then there's a lot that takes place five years later. And one of the survivors of the atomic bombing, who's still suffering as a result, is together with another survivor and makes the comment that even an unjust peace is much better than a just war. And right where we're in now is not a just war because there was absolutely no justification for what Russia is doing. Even though Putin has been laying out for years these national security concerns and that the West has been ignoring them and that for 30 plus years, the West has run roughshod over Russia, there is absolutely no justification for what is happening now, especially in terms of what Putin was saying. Putin, first of all, is saying that he can't abide by Ukraine joining NATO. Well, Ukraine was not about to join NATO. That was not about to happen. Germany made that clear. France made that clear. Hungary made that clear. Others made it clear. That was not on the table. Secondly, what does he talk about Monday night in his speech? He talks about what Zelensky had said on Saturday night. I know it was Saturday because the phone starts ringing, the emails start coming in, and the Russian television networks all want to interview me about what Zelensky said about the Budapest Memorandum, which, in case your listeners forget, was from 1994, in which Ukraine agreed to give up its vast nuclear arsenal that it had gotten from the Soviets during the Cold War in exchange for guarantees for peace and stability. And now on Saturday, Zelensky announces that they're abandoning their commitment to the Budapest Memorandum. Not a single Western source that I saw, and I searched as many as I could in the United States or elsewhere, talked about the implications of that. It was all over Russia. To the Russians, this meant that Ukraine was threatening to develop nuclear weapons. And we know they've got some infrastructure. We know they've got some scientific know-how. We know they've got a dozen nuclear power plants to produce the raw materials, the enriched uranium. And so the Russians took that very seriously. And one of the, the things that Putin talked about in his crazy Monday night speech was Ukraine getting nuclear weapons. I even said in those interviews that I'm afraid that Zelensky has signed Ukraine's death warrant by that statement and by his other very aggressive things he was saying. Because Zelensky had been a voice of calm and a voice of moderation. And he'd criticized Biden and he criticized the, the US for its alarmism in the statements leading up before that Saturday night. But then he had gone over to the deep end also. That was not helpful. But if we look at what Putin is saying, there's a lot of speculation right now whether or not Putin is actually unhinged. And the things he's saying about denazification, yes, there's some Nazi 
fascist elements involved there, but it's not a Nazi regime. I'm glad you said that. That's something that Eric Dreitzer was making really clear, the anti-imperialist journalist. Sorry to interrupt you, Peter Kuznick, but I'm glad you said that. And I'm also glad you mentioned the nukes, the nuclear plants there, because I was talking to Harvey Wasserman about that. I just wanted to remind listeners, too, that I spoke with Harvey Wasserman February 24th. I'm speaking with you, Peter Kuznick, on February 25th. And the reason I want to say that right now, before we get moving further, is that when this show airs, it's going to be... Monday the 28th through the following week. So things are going to change, and I want to make sure our listeners know when these conversations took place because there's a lot going on. So, Peter, please continue. I'm just saying that Putin was sounding unhinged. You know, for all of his faults, for all of his anti-democratic tendencies, for all the crap that he allows to go on, assassination of journalists in Russia, cracking down on Navalny and dissenters, I mean, all these crazy things that some of us have been not willing to turn a blind eye to because we're very critical of it, but willing to still try to understand the way he sees the world. What he was saying Monday night and Tuesday just seemed a little bit wacky and deranged. And uh, talking about the drug dealers running the government, talking about Ukraine not being a sovereign nation, I mean, there's a lot of history there. His attacks on the Bolsheviks and Lenin for recognizing Ukraine's independence. Putin seemed to be losing it. And it's hard to think along with Putin. But there's an interesting response by the Russian analyst Anatoly Evan, in which he quoted Secretary of State Cordell Hull's response to the Japanese statement that accompanied the attack on Pearl Harbor. And Cordell Hull said, in all my 50 years of public service, I've never seen a document that was more crowded with infamous falsehoods and distortions on a scale so huge that I never imagined until today that any government on this planet was capable of uttering them. Now, you and I know, of course, that the United States build up to the invasion of Iraq was filled with even more crazy than Putin's statement on Monday and Tuesday that even Colin Powell's statement before the United Nations was filled with more insanity. And every time Donald Trump opened his mouth, it was filled with more insanity. But that is true, though. This was a totally irresponsible, reckless statement, which, of course, makes me very, very worried. On top of the fact that Russia and Belarus had these display of missiles, both ballistic and cruise missiles, nuclear capable missiles, in order to send the message that they are capable of doing that, including hypersonic missiles, which an area in which Russia is ahead of the United States. And then Putin's statements this last few days, effectively threatening anybody who militarily threatens Russia with nuclear war, it makes me very, very worried. As you and I have discussed over the years, there are two people on the planet. Right now, it's Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin who have veto power over the future existence of life on this planet. And if one of those two people is sounding unhinged, then that threatens all of us. And so the question is, how do we get through to this guy? There are protests all over Russia, which wonderful, and that my Russian colleagues and friends who I speak to are horrified by what's happening. 
in many ways, you know, they don't hate. It was one thing when, when you can demonize your enemy. And, you know, we could demonize the Vietnamese, those communists, and we tried, even though Ho made it difficult. Uh, we could demonize the Afghans, those primitive savages who can't even read and just do drugs. We could demonize the Iraqis. Uh, we could demonize Gaddafi. But it's very hard for Putin to demonize the Ukrainians because they really are one people with a shared history and a shared culture. And they refer to each other as brothers. And so this assault is, has, has, has provoked a lot of opposition inside Russia and even among the soldiers. They don't want to be killing Ukrainians. There's not support for this. It's not bloodlust on the part of the Russians. It's Putin and a small critique. You know, we should have listened to Putin and taken him seriously. This was his backyard. This was an issue that was so much more important to him than it is to the United States, certainly, or the Europeans. Ukraine is at the heart of Putin's thinking, and we downplayed it. And the other mistake we made was to not engage in serious diplomacy. There was a theme in the United States, especially, you turn on CNN and MSNBC, and what we've heard for years is this demonization of Putin, the vilification of Putin, and, and this, this theme that Putin is another Hitler, as we say about all of our enemies, Putin's another Hitler, he, uh, he can't be reasoned with, and he represents pure evil, and you can't compromise with evil, and diplomacy is appeasement in that circumstance. And when you, when you erect those kinds of barriers like that, and you see this in black and white moral terms, this kind of Manichaean worldview that we've developed, then there is no off-ramp. And so instead of taking Putin seriously about his national security concerns, which he's been voicing, articulating for at least 15 years and way beyond that, uh, we created, we helped create a situation which I'm not saying that in any way minimizes or mitigates Putin's responsibility. If he doesn't cut this out quickly, he's going to be up there in that panoply of war criminals with George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. But there's still hope. There's a glimmer of hope to cut this off before it gets to that point. And we've got to figure out that off-ramps. I just want to remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're speaking with American University historian Peter Kuznick. We're talking about what's happening with Russia, Ukraine right now. And we'll be back to hear more from historian Peter Kuznick after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're joined today by Professor of History, Peter Kuznick. 
Pete's. Peter Kuznick was on the program just a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about the tensions brewing in Eastern Europe, U.S., NATO, Russia, Ukraine. Now those have boiled over. Yesterday, I had a chance to speak with Harvey Wasserman about nuclear implications, nuclear power. That was February 24. It's now February 25. This show airs across the country next week, so I want to make sure our listeners know that the guests that I've had on here today and yesterday can't be held accountable for things that are going to happen in the future. So back to you, Peter Kuznick. There's some things you wanted to talk about. You were just talking about the historical baggage around Putin's neck. In some cases, he's helping put it on there. You're talking about the failure of diplomacy, and history teaches us a lot of things about the failure of diplomacy, and you had a couple of other things you wanted to add. We don't want to minimize Putin's responsibility. There's very, very strong negative reaction inside of Russia to what's happening. And Putin's speech Monday night and again on Tuesday did not really even try to convince the Russian people. It was a, not a rational speech. And it did very, very little to prepare the Russian public for what was coming. Nobody I spoke to in Russia really believed that Russia was about to invade. And even most Americans, even though the United States was saying day after day after day that the invasion is imminent and that they had intelligence to prove that, most of us didn't really believe it was going to happen because it seemed to be so irrational. As Chancellor Scholz said, after speaking to Putin, he said it makes no sense to go to war over the admission of Ukraine to NATO when that's not even on the agenda. It's not even any chance that this is going to happen. So what are we talking about? The same thing with Ukraine developing nuclear weapons. Putin made a big point of this, but Ukraine was not going to develop nuclear weapons. And everybody knew that that was an ultimate red line. The United States would not support that. The Europeans would not support that. At least most of the Europeans would not support that. And But Zelensky made a big mistake by even threatening, implying that he was wanting to do that. There's so much. You turn on U.S. television or U.S. media of any sort. The chronology begins in 2014 with Russia's move into the Donbass and Crimea. But for us as historians, we trace it back much, much earlier. I mean, I trace it back to 1990 with the collapse of the Soviet Union or imminent collapse. And Charles Krauthammer, the neocon theoretician, saying that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, America is now the unipolar power, the world's hegemon, the only superpower, that this is the unipolar moment. Krauthammer says it's going to last for 30 or 40 years. Then right after that, in 1992, We've got all the leading neocons talking about with the defense planning guidance, which they ultimately walked back because it was so flagrant. But again, saying we will not allow anybody to emerge in any part of the world who can even challenge the U.S. in that region. And they walked it back, but they didn't forget it. And in 1997, when the Project for New American Century was formed, that was their standard view that the U.S. is the hegemon and we're going to dictate to everybody. And they all went into the Bush administration. Bush's top advisors were from the Project for a New American Century. Well, in 2002, Krauthammer revisits it 
And he says, I was wrong back in 1990. It's not the unipolar moment. It's the unipolar era, and it's going to last indefinitely, maybe a century. And that was the view that these people had. And it was at that point that they start talking about American empire in a positive way. They come out of the woodwork. Uh, the New York Times Sunday Magazine section, January 5th, 2003, headlined American empire, get used to it. And then they all start talking about which other countries we're going to overthrow. Wesley Clark says that people at the Pentagon named seven other countries we would overthrow. And they're the ones that, that included Libya, included Syria, included Iran, and included Iraq. I mean, it went through all of the major ones that the U.S., the planner's wet dream was to overthrow all of these governments. However, things went downhill quickly in Afghanistan and Iraq. And by 2006, even Krauthammer was acknowledging that the unipolar era was over and the unipolar moment is coming to an end. However, we look at this again from the Russian standpoint. So in 2001, after the U.S. gets hit on 9-11, the first foreign leader to contact George W. Bush and lend support was Vladimir Putin. Putin allowed the use of Russian airspace in order to attack Afghanistan, even though even after what the U.S. had done to Russia and Afghanistan. And he thought we'd be friends. And then in 2002, then in 2002, we abrogate the ABM treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. The Russians were shocked. 2003, the U.S. invades Iraq over Russian objections and European objections. 2004, NATO expands seven more countries to Russia's border, including the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. We knew since 1990 that the thing that the Russians were most upset about was NATO expansion. And this is clear. And even though we gave the promise in 1990 that NATO would not expand one inch to the east, that same year, within weeks, the National Security Council was already planning for NATO expansion and saying it's time for us to signal the newly liberated Russian republics that they will eventually be allowed into NATO. We can't do it now, but we'll be able to do it soon. And then we start the expansion in 1999. We increased it in 2004. And then in 2007 is when Putin gives his speech at the Munich Security Conference and says, Western hypermilitarism on the part of the United States is no longer tolerable. We see what the U.S. has been doing around the world. He says NATO expansion is not acceptable, that American unipolarity is not to be accepted, and basically throws down the gauntlet, and we ignored him again. And then in 2008, George W. Bush goes to the NATO meeting, which Putin actually was attending for the first time at the NATO meeting, and says, we want to fast track Ukraine and Georgia entering NATO. The U.S. ambassador to Russia at the time was William Burns, our current director of the CIA. He writes back that memo to Washington titled, Niet means Niet, don't cross Russia's red lines. Burns wrote a memoir two years ago called The Back Channel, in which he repeats that. But the wise thinkers have been saying this since 1997. Not only George Kennan, but also 50 top foreign policy experts had written to Clinton in 1997 and said, don't expand NATO to the east. 
that Russia is friendly. This is no reason to do this. Russia is going to react. They're going to see this as a threat. But that advice kept falling on deaf ears over those years, and we did expand it. And so in 2018, after the Donbass uprising, March 1st, 2018, Putin issues his State of the Nation address and announces that Russia now has five new nuclear weapons, all of which can circumvent U.S. missile defense. And he says, you didn't listen to us. Listen to us now. Did we listen? No, we did not listen. And in the last couple of years, when we had a chance to at least begin to take Russia's national security interests into consideration, we couldn't do that. And there's a lot of blame to go around. I mean, on the one hand, Biden did bungle the withdrawal from Afghanistan. He looked weak and inept. And the Republicans jumped down his throat and talked about Biden's incompetence and weakness. And so Biden decides he's got to be a strong guy and a tough guy, and he's not going to compromise. So you've got that going on. But Biden also surrounded himself with 16 hawks from the Center for New American Security who were pushing him to confront Russia. They're saying no appeasement, don't mollify, don't compromise. And then you've got Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who supported the invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq, the invasion of Libya, the bombing of Syria. These are not the statesmen who we need. And Biden got very bad advice. And, you know, it's not Biden's fault because he did try to negotiate and offer what he thought were reasonable concessions, but they weren't. And Putin kept saying, you're not hearing us. You're not listening to our real security concerns. That said, what Putin did is horrific. What Putin did is a moral outrage. What Putin did is a breach of international law. And he's going to be held accountable and it's going to hurt the Russian people. It's going to destroy his place in history. We need an off-ramp immediately. So what is the off-ramp? Is it possible to walk this back at this juncture? It is possible, but it is not easy. Zelensky just said that he wants to negotiate. He wants to meet. He wants to talk about neutralizing Ukraine, which is what Putin had been wanting for a long time and never heard. And so the country who supports that, the one country that can play the role of an honest mediator potentially is China. Xi Jinping just spoke with Putin and China issued an announcement that Putin is willing to negotiate now. We don't know if that's true, you know, but at least it's worth a try. China has recognized Ukraine's sovereignty, independence, legitimacy. China has heavy investments in Ukraine. Ukraine is an important part of the Belt and Road Initiative. China does not want to see this invasion and did not want to see the disruption of global supply chains and the world economy. China is also Russia's ally and friend. And China has said that it agrees with Russia about NATO encroachment. So I could see China being the one country that can speak to both interests here. Macron made a valiant effort, but failed. Uh, Scholz is too weak and new. And maybe if Merkel was there, she could have played that role. But clearly, uh, Baerbach and the Greens are not going to play that role, nor, nor is Scholz. China and France have some interest and some credibility in this regard. There is still time for Russia to stop this madness before there's a humanitarian catastrophe inside of Ukraine. 
And while there's a chance, we've got to seize it. And everybody inside Russia, those brave people who are standing up to the Russian police and are standing up to Putin should be applauded. And we need demonstrations all over the planet. Those global demonstrations didn't stop George W. Bush from attacking Iraq, invading Iraq, but maybe they can stop Putin from going further in this insane invasion and unnecessary, senseless, counterproductive invasion of Ukraine. I just hope that by the time this airs, you're going to say, that's irrelevant. We've solved the problem. The fighting has stopped. I've been an anti-war activist since the Vietnam War. And as much as I think that we have to understand the history, I hate war. There are certain people who profit from war. Those merchants of death, those defense contractors, to them, and even the stock market is up. It's obscene. These people are criminals. And there was a movement in the 1930s to take all the profits out of war, to immediately, if war began, to nationalize the defense sectors and cut off all the profits. And that's one step that I would like to see. But, and I just hope that a week from now, what we're saying is irrelevant because we found another path to de-escalate and begin to have sane statesmen and diplomacy prevail. I'm right there with you, Peter Kuznick, and in total solidarity and very grateful for the decades of your work and your work for pacifism and against war and certainly your important work as an historian and public intellectual Peter Kuznick is professor of history at American University, co-author with Oliver Stone of The Untold History of the United States. Peter, thank you so much for talking about this very crucial issue. Thank you, Mickey, for having me. My pleasure. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff, executive producer and host of the program, co-founded by Peter Phillips in 2010. Our co-host is Eleanor Goldfield, and Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer and man behind the curtain. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org and see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. Last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in, and thanks for welcoming our new co-host, Eleanor Goldfield. We'll see you next time. Unthinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised under the guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why taxes while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out to reach all potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that love, we flip the problem.